All right. Hey, some great questions at the break. Thank you all for doing that. Love to see that you're thinking through these things. Encourage you to continue to talk, talk amongst yourselves when you go home as well. But we are back in Hebrews right now, chapter 3. But not for long, actually. We're going to go somewhere else um, in just a second here. So we've seen Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the angels, which is really important because God gave the law through the angels to Moses. Um, and if God judged people who disobeyed the law, how much more the one who fulfills the law Jesus is the founder of the salvation. He did what Adam didn't do, and he delivered us from the death that has you know, hung over us as um, a threat, which the devil um, kept us enslaved in fear. But Christ is now a sympathetic high priest who intercedes for us, and he's greater than Moses. He has greater glory than Moses. Um, and Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is a son over the house, and we are of this house if... Indeed, we hold fast our confession about Christ and our boasting in our hope, which Hebrews 11 is going to talk more about that. But now what he's going to do is he's going to show you, starting in verse 7, an example to avoid. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us, and then we're going to go to, um, to two other places. Actually, what he's going to do is he's going to quote Psalm 95, and then he's going to, to move into this, this example. So why don't we actually just go to Psalm 95. Hang a left. Keep your finger in Hebrews. Psalms, Proverbs. Psalms is the big book in the middle. Psalm 95. Psalm 95. A great psalm, by the way. Not that they aren't all great. Uniquely great, maybe. Psalm 95 says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Verse 3, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the sea. The heights of the mountains are also His. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down, and let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Praise God. Like, He is a great God. There's no other response except to worship Him, right? Today, if you hear His voice... Do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, which means quarreling, as on the day at Massah, which means testing in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are people go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I am a God who is worthy of worship, he says. And if they will not, then they will know my wrath and they will not enter rest. That's what happened to those who hardened their hearts against his voice in Exodus 15 and 17, uh, or the places he references there, and then on in, in the book of Numbers. Now, on your way back to Hebrews, stop at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 10. The Apostle Paul here picks up the same thing that the author of Hebrew do, uh, does and uses the Exodus generation as an example to avoid. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, meaning the, the cloud that passed before them. You remember the cloud of, uh, by day and the pillar of fire by night? And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses. So they were identified with Moses as they went through in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. What's that? Manna. They all drank from the same spiritual drink. What was that? Water. Remember, they came from the rock. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was... Jesus is in the Old Testament. Yeah, he is. Verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's the golden calf incident. And we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. And we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. Notice who they were testing in the wilderness? Christ. And were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction. One of the reasons the Holy Spirit inspired 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 is for our instruction. It's, in, it's aimed at us to teach us something on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You think you don't need to hear these warnings? Pride goes before the fall. Be very careful. No temptation has overtaken you that is such as common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Back to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. There's an example to avoid, and He wants you to know that there's temptations on every side of the road for Christians as you journey toward heaven. There are temptations. And exit ramps toward idolatry of all sorts. And we all have different exits that are more appealing to us. And he says, be very careful. But you've got to know there's a way of escape. You don't have to go that way. God's faithful. Even when you feel like being unfaithful, he provides a way out. There's always a way out. This generation is used as an example to warn you. This is one of the ways that God's proving His faithfulness, is showing you, don't do what they did. Because they had a lot of spiritual experiences, but in the end, they fell under judgment. Don't let that happen to you. So by the Spirit, the author here in Hebrews chapter 3, let me go ahead and read three through, or 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, 
Well, we are of his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they are always going astray. Where? In their heart. They have not known my ways. Notice there, he didn't say they forgot my ways. They have not known them. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. He's not talking about people who lose salvation here. He's talking about people who never had it. They went through a whole lot of spiritual experiences that looked like they had it, but they didn't have it. As I swore in my wrath, verse 11, they shall not enter my rest. The Spirit here uses this example from Israel's history to show what happens to those who don't persevere in faith. Hear this, under Moses, an entire generation heard of God's grace. They tasted of God's goodness. They saw God's glory. They saw plagues. They saw Red Sea. They walked through the Red Sea. They learned the law. They ate manna. They drank water. They saw saw His glory. They saw promises fulfilled in their life. They even ate of Canaan's fruits. And they hardened their heart and rebelled and said, we don't want it. He says, don't be like that. There is an example to avoid because they loved their old life. You remember the whole time what they grumbled about? Oh, I wish we were back in Egypt. Man, back in Egypt, they had leeks and onions, and I can smell it now, you know. So, so, so whenever, whenever your heart and your mind starts to wander to former days of sin, and you start thinking about, oh, I wish I would have done that back then, or I wish I would have given in to that, or what would it be like one more time, just know that's from hell. And that is, that is trying to get you to forget how sweet the promises of Canaan are and to go back to Egypt. And this is intended to warn us to say, don't go back. Don't look back. Right? Um, where is it? I forget where it is. There's one verse. Remember Lot's wife. Remember what happened. She looked back. Don't be like that. Now, what he does here, verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, the church. So he's talking, so this would have been read just like to a congregation, like we're not a congregation, we're a gathering of people who are different congregations. Anyway, so let's pretend we're a church. We're not a church, we're all part of the church, potentially, but let's pretend we're a church, I'm the pastor. Take care, brothers and sisters, church. Lest there be in any of you individuals an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He's talking to the community, the church, the faith community, those who are following Jesus. He's talking to them as a whole all the way through here, and then he's applying it to individuals as well. So it's, it's, it's to the church and individuals in the church as well. Take care, brothers lest there be in any one of you 
an evil, unbelieving heart. It calls you to fall away from the living God. This falling away is the same kind of falling away that Jesus speaks about in Luke chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, where there's a seed that falls on the ground. The first is plucked up by Satan. There's nothing at all. But the next one, it says it falls and it begins to bear, or it begins to sprout up. But then what happens? It's choked out and they fall away. Same exact language. Luke chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. Fall away from the living God. So what is the antidote to apostasy? Now when I say apostasy, anybody know what apostasy means? Yeah, so apo means out from, to go out from. To go out from, it would be like if I'm part of the congregation and I stand up and I say, listen y'all, Jesus stuff, it's crazy. Looney Tunes, I'm out of here. And you leave. You go out from the congregation. 1 John 2 says, they went out from us because they were not of us. If they would have been of us, they wouldn't have gone out from us. But they went out from us to show that they weren't of us. Because those who are of us persevere until the end. Okay? Now, there may be times where we go out and like that's where Dave says, no, 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 we've got to go get him. This is what the church is intended to be. Go get him. And you go and you drag me back and I repent and I'm like, I'm sorry, I sinned. Lord, forgive us, and we cry and we praise God that he brings us home. That's what he does. That's what the church does, okay? But we're talking here about, he says, don't, don't leave. Don't, don't leave him because there's nowhere to go. So what is the antidote to apostasy? The church. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do the opposite of what the twelve spies did for the nation. Remember what the twelve spies did? They came back and they're like, oh, it's all true, but there's giants in the land. And everybody's like, ooh, giants. You're like, yeah, we can't go in. They're like, yeah, they can't. So they discouraged the people. He says, don't do that. Do the opposite. Exhort and encourage each other every day as long as it's called today. Means as long as it's today, until the days end with the return of Christ and we usher in to the final day that never will end. Until that day, what the church is supposed to do is get in each other's business. If you're a Christian, that means you have forsaken the right in one sense, to privacy. Because now your name is not about you anymore. You're a Christian. I mean, you've got Jesus' name on you. That means that if I'm in your church, you have the responsibility to get in my grill if I start to get in my business, if I start bringing damage to the name of Jesus. Like, so before I left on my trip, so I'm gone, for, I'm gone for 12 days away from my family. In staff meeting, I told the guys, I was like, here's the deal. When I travel, that's a time that I feel weak and tempted. So here's the questions you need to ask me when I get back. Ask me these specific questions about how I did in regards to guarding my heart and my eyes and my time during my time away. This is what you need to ask me. And you know what? They ask me. You know why? Because I'm a Christian and they're Christians and that's what Christians do. They get in each other's business. 
on this trip, Brian and I, we help each other. This is what we need to do every day as long as it's called today. That's what Christians do. So since none of you are in my church, except for Brian, I'm just going to say something, okay? So God bless you, okay? In Texas, that means you're about to get it, okay? It is nothing but pride when you say it's none of your business. That's pride, brothers and sisters. And that is a pride that will, that will lead you. I'm not saying you're going to go to hell if you have that. But what I'm saying is that's the type of pride that pushes people away from you. And that is the help that God has given you to keep you from being deceived in sin. If you don't have somebody in your life who knows your business, I mean, and I'm not just talking about some friend in like, you know, New Zealand, who you Skype every six months. You know, I'm not talking about that buddy. I'm talking about somebody who looks in your eyes and knows you. And you say, here's what's going on in my life. Here's my temptations. Here's how I'm giving in. Here's where I'm struggling. Here's where I need help. If you don't have that, you are setting yourself up for danger. You can't make it home by yourself. You can't. You can do it for a little while. But you're not created to live that way as a Christian. You need other people. Brothers and sisters, pray that you would first be humble enough to receive that word. And that you would secondly obey the word. And you would find somebody or a couple people that you trust, that you're able to be that way with, and that you're able to be that person for somebody else. And show them in the Bible why you want to do this. Be like, I think we need to obey this. Please, you need this. God's provision to help you not fall away, one of his means of provision is the church. You need other Christians. so that you will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So right there, where it's coming in your mind, you're like, well, I don't really need that. That's deceitfulness. It's coming. It's trying to trick you. It's trying to harden your heart. It's just a lie. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We have become partakers if. It's a plural perfect tense, which means it's a past action that has ongoing effects. We have, become, we have become partakers of Christ. It's true that we did partake of Christ, and that is still happening if we do this. So how do you know if that was real? Well, because it keeps going on. Living things keep on living. That's what living things do. That's the example, by the way, he's going to use at the end of Hebrews 6. He's going to give you two examples, one that sprouts to life and one that sprouts to death. That's how you know if something's alive, if it's alive. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those who... For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt... Led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? 
So we see that we, or I'm sorry, they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Pause. He's not talking here about your, your daily struggle with sin. That daily unbelief that creeps into your heart. He's not intending to stir up in you an anxiety and a fear that makes you like, oh no, I'm probably not a Christian because I'm totally struggling here or I'm doubting. That's not what he's talking about. That's the normal experience of a, of a Christian. We are not home yet. We still have the, the flesh that abides and that's there. What he's talking about here is the hardening of the heart against Jesus saying, you know what? I don't actually need him. You know, he's not actually the Lord. He's not the Savior. I'm going to go back to whatever else it may be. Now, the hardening of the heart is it's one of the, the things that, that Satan uses. Um, I wrote it down here. The hardening of our heart is the spring of all other sins. So, the great sin of apostasy, it originates with the hardening of the heart in small things. So, guard the heart. Therefore, verse 1, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, it's out here, it still stands, here's the promise, come and get it, make it home, salvation, press in. Therefore, while the promise of His rest still stands, and will until the end of time, or until we die, let us, what's your word? Fear. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. He commands you here to fear. That's interesting. I thought we weren't supposed to fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. True. But there's, there's lots of verses we take together here. So listen to this from the book of Jeremiah. This is great. There's a certain kind of fear that's really, really good for you that Hebrews serves you well in. Okay? So if Hebrews makes you nervous when you're hearing it, this is really good. There is a godly, so there's a godless fear that makes us push away from God or cower from Him and not look at Him. But there's a godly fear that does the opposite, that makes you draw near to Him. Okay? Listen to this, Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I... <laughs> I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they may not turn from me. I'm going to put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn from me. There's a good fear that we are intended to have toward God where we realize that He is the giver of life. So I should respond to Him in a way that says, well, then give me life. And if you don't give it to me, I'm doomed. But we know he will because he's a good father who loves to care for his children. That's what he does. That's what his promises are about. So we're not in this, it's not this paralyzing fear. It's an inviting fear. One that says, yes, I trust. Now, he talks more here about this rest that is before us. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them. So they heard gospel message. They heard a gospel message, but it didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Those who listened is the remnant. Okay? Now, verse 3. 
For we who have believed enter that rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. I'm just going to read this and then explain what it means. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. He's quoting again scripture here from Genesis. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, the rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words we already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hang on. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. God creates the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. That rest was a perfect rest, where Adam and Eve enjoyed God in the finished creation. It was how life was supposed to be. They sinned. Rest was broken. Now man wearily walks by faith. God gives a promise. I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt. I'm going to take you through. Here's my law so you know what I'm like. And we're going to the promised land. They don't believe, wander for 40 years. Then Joshua takes them into the promised land. Joshua brings them in. They are in the land of rest. And it says that in the end of Joshua. And then the people rested. But that rest that they had under Joshua, it wasn't the final rest. It was a picture of a greater rest that's to come. The one, the greater Joshua, Jesus, who will lead the people of God into the final rest, which is that rest that God had on the seventh day. The final rest is that we will be with the Lord in a place where there's no more crying or tears or pain no more cancer, no more funerals, no more ISIS, no more none of that. It's all gone. And all we will know is the rest and the peace and the joy of seeing the face of the Father forever, just like it was in the beginning. What he's saying is, that rest is before you. That rest is there. The one that Joshua gave wasn't the final rest. It was a picture of that rest. So press into the rest. Verse 11 Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. There's an interesting idea. Strive to enter the rest. But I thought we're supposed to rest. You do rest. Rest in Christ's finished work, and in so doing, you will draw strength to strive. Listen to this this verse. I've got it somewhere. I wrote it down because I thought we'd need it. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do it. So strive with all that you've got. Well, I don't have that strength. Don't worry. God is working in you to give you the will to do it and making the work happen. That's how you strive by grace. You rest in Christ's finished work. The Holy Spirit of God empowers you to give you a will to want to. So somebody asked me a, a couple minutes ago, um, well, you know, what do we, I, I keep, I still sin, I still give in. Yes, but now it bothers you. That's God's Spirit alerting you to the fact that, whoa, 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 you're a child of God. 
Don't go back to Cain. Don't go back to Egypt. Press in. He gives you the will and the strength to do it. So by His grace, you strive. So do you work? Yes, in all of the grace that He supplies. So there's a fighting that we do now against sin. So there's no couch potato Christian. You want me to say a couch potato? Like you just sit on the couch and sit back and be like, well, God's just going to do it all. Like that's, that's not how it works at all. You engage. This is war. It is grace that alerts you to that. It is grace that helps you to fight. It is grace that ensures that you will make it home. So we war by grace, but we war. Strive to enter the rest. And you're grabbing one another and helping each other away. And when you're down, somebody's grabbing you. That's, that's, what, that's what it's like until we make it home. That's the, that's the Christian life. That we're pressing into the rest by grace, through faith, in Christ. It's always that. The power of the Holy Spirit helping us all the way home. So the Christian faith is not void of effort. Labor with all the grace that he supplies. Cling to promises. Fight the sin. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This same word that you hear right now, is about the gospel that we will be judged by on that last day. And it will expose everything. And he's saying, because of that, listen to it. Believe it. It's a convicting word, and we are going to be laid bare. That, That language there, we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It reminds us of what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve knew that they were naked. They were exposed in their sin, and they knew it. God's word shows it to us. It turns the light on in the darkness, and we're shown for who we are. Nowhere to hide. Everything's exposed. He says that's what God's word does for us. So heed it. Believe it. Don't turn away from it. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But as long as it's called today, help each other to heaven. That's what you do. You help each other to heaven, knowing that the grace of God is your strength. The penetrating power of God's word will expose us and render us defenseless before God Almighty. God's heavenly call is a wonderful invitation, but if we reject it, we will not escape his wrath. His word fell deaf on the Exodus generation, and we must avoid their example and finish the race. Brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you to not allow yourself and to not allow those around you to just kind of coast in Christianity. Like Jesus is no joke. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Son of God. He's the final word. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. Help each other to behold him and delight in him and trust him. Don't fall away. Cling. Cling to him. He is our hope. Now he pauses there and he begins, I think, the largest section in the book. 
Since then, we have a great high priest. And he's going to move in chapter 4, verse 14, all the way through the end of chapter 10. And he's going to show that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. So you hear that and it should make you say, I want that. I don't want to have deaf ears. We want that as a church, but we need help. Oh, good news. Jesus helps you. He's a high priest who intercedes for you. He is your strength. He is your helper. He is the anchor that, you're, that, that, that the chain is tied to you and he is pulling you in. So rest in him. And that's what he says in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So Jesus is, he's there where we want to go. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You see it again, third time. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, chapter 2, verse 18, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. He says, draw, th- draw to the throne of grace with confidence, boldness. Now you've got to understand, like, for if a, if a Jew hears that, they're like, whoa, 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 hold on. You can't go into the throne room. In the tabernacle, you have the holy place and the holy of holies. In the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's a picture of God's presence. Inside the law dwell, the law was there, Aaron's uh, um, bud, um, his rod, and you've got manna picture of God's presence, his ruling, and his truth, and his presence is there, and his glory abides there. Nobody can come into the Holy of Holies except once a year. We'll see that tomorrow. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest can come in there. Around the Holy of Holies is a curtain. On this curtain, anybody know from Exodus what's embroidered on it? Embroidered on this curtain around the Holy of Holies this curtain that keeps, God, keeps man, sinful man, from holy God, lest he be consumed, are cherubim. Cherubim are embroidered on it. Do you remember when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden? A cherubim was put in front of the tree of life so that no one could access it. People still cannot access the presence of God. The cherubim guard you from going in. Until Jesus goes to the cross, and when he's on the cross, something happens in the temple. The veil, with embroidered cherubim, is torn in two from top to bottom, so that man can now come into the presence of God. God makes the way through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him, because how are you going to get in there? You're going to be good enough to get in there? <laughs> you can get smoked. No. No. Jesus shed his blood. And now the wrath of God is satisfied. And now we, in Christ, can come boldly into his throne room. That's why you pray in the name of Jesus. It's not some token magical thing that you, you put on the end of your prayers. It is saying, holy God of heaven, I bring a request to you. I do not bring it in my own righteousness. I bring it in the name of Jesus, the Son whom you accept, who is my high priest, who even now is seated at the right hand, finished work. He is interceding on my behalf. I need grace in a time of need. We need help to make it home. 
We come boldly in the name of Jesus. You don't go in your own righteousness. You go in the righteousness of another. That's why you pray in the name of Jesus. It's not some magical formula. Okay? That's what that means. It's, it's, a, it's a every time you pray submission to the fact that Jesus is Lord and you trust in that every time you pray. That's the idea behind it. That's our hope is that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize for us in our weaknesses. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause here for a moment before we get into chapter 5 and chapter 6. I'm going to take about seven minutes, seven to ten, depends on how good the questions are, um, and want to see what kinds of questions uh, that you might have about that warning that we saw in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, okay? Any, any questions or anything that was unclear or anything like that? Now listen, there's no dumb questions. Seriously, like these are, this is important stuff, and Nobody has any questions about that. Are you all awake, for real? I mean, I'm, you may be able to, it may be clear, but I doubt it's that clear. Again, your name, brother, um, either where you're from or what church you go to. My name, is, my name is Jason, and I go to Redeemer Church of Dubai. Uh, my question is from chapter 3. It seems like um, the people uh, had hardened hearts. And they, ne- they never knew God. Um, my question is, can Christians today have hardened hearts? It seems like they never knew God here at all. Great. But Christians who know God, who know Jesus, can our hearts be hardened? Is that biblical? Great question. Can, can believers have hardened hearts? So there's two types of hardened hearts. Whenever you read through the Gospels, you see that the disciples often had hardened hearts. It says their hearts were hard. He goes, why are your heart's hard? Why are you of little faith? What are you doing? Like, like that's that con- so there's a very real sense in which true believers' hearts can be hardened. That's why he tells you to not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Because that's, that's a way that we, we harden our heart against God. Right? There's another very real sense in which unbelievers' hearts are hard toward God. They can, out of other motivations besides... God is glorious. He's worthy of worship. Pursue Jesus. My life's fallen apart. I need to get out of this addiction. My marriage is crumbling. I want a better life for my family. I'm sick of being so sad all the time. Or whatever it may be. There's a lot of reasons that people can begin following God and doing church stuff. That pursuit, though, it won't last. And it's, it's still a hardened heart that's not rooted in worship it's actually rooted in making God just a helper for my problems rather than the savior of my soul who then transforms my life. Does that make sense? Those are two different things. What I don't have and none of us have are like the special glasses that can tell which, one, which hearts we have, right? Time tells. So this is a very pastoral book. It's a pastor talking to a church saying, listen, we're all in this together. And God's word is going out and we've got to check each other to make sure that none of our hearts are being hardened because we don't know which kind of hardness it is. If, you're a, if your, heart, your heart is becoming hard as a believer, it's sin and we need to repent of it. So we need to help each other. You know, because the, the question is then, well, like, does it become so hard that eventually you fall away? Right? Well, you don't want to find out. <laughs> That's kind of what he's talking about here. 
Because in the end, you prove which one you really were. That's the way that it works. So it's not like a, you were born again and then you hardened your heart and now you're not born again anymore. There's just no categories like that. It's either I never knew you, said Jesus, or I know you and I am going to, I'm convicting you of this hardness and we need to repent and help each other to heaven kind of thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, pause. In a room this large, with as many different churches as we come from, I know there's going to be some diversity on interpretation on some of this book. I appreciate your, your kindness in listening to this. I do understand there's other interpretations on some of these things. This is just, I'm just, I don't have time to give every single thought on the different views of Hebrews. I'm just going to teach through it, and I encourage you guys to wrestle with it. That way you can just hear this, this angle on it, okay? Um, but but that's, that's my take. So, good question. Any other questions? That's a good one. All right. Are they normally this quiet? No. You don't know. That's fine. I'll just take that as your understanding. Are you understanding? Yes. All right. Praise God. Here we go. Chapter 4. He's moving into this section, as I've already said, about the high priests. And there, I think this is because the main issue that people were coming at this church with was saying Jesus is not qualified to be a high priest. So what he's going to do is he's going to take chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, and he's going to say, oh yeah, he is. And he's going to show how Jesus fulfills everything that the law requires. Jesus fulfills every bit of the sacrificial system. Jesus mediates a better covenant. He is not only able to save those who draw near, but he is the one who saves those who draw near. Everything else is a mere shadow. He is the substance. Okay? Um, oh, yeah. This is a note that I wrote down here. In a book with such a strong emphasis on perseverance in faith, there is an equally, if not more weighty emphasis on the hope of that per- perseverance, which is Jesus being our perfect, sufficient, eternal high priest. That's a really important observation. He's going he's gonna to push on you, persevere, persevere, persevere. But he's going to do more, so he gives you five warnings, but he's going to give you 13 chapters of Jesus is better. Jesus, by, by showing you him, so this is, this, here's a trick. So how many, any pastors in here? Anybody a pastor in here? Anybody want to be a pastor? Okay, that's fine. If not, pray for your pastor. Here's the deal. This is good in your discipling as well, Okay. The way you grow is by beholding Jesus. The way that you're strengthened is by beholding Jesus. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all, believers, with unveiled face, meaning we see clearly, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What that means is the way that you're, you're taken from one degree of glory to another. It's called sanctification. It's a growth in Christ's likeness. The way that you grow in Christ's likeness, in gloriousness, that's a new word. Um, the way that that happens is by seeing Jesus. 
with unveiled face, you see how glorious He is, how beautiful He is, how merciful He is, how faithful He is, how righteous He is. You see how good He is. And what that does for a Christian is it warms your heart. It makes your affections burn. And you say, I want more of Him. I want to be more like Him. And when when that's going on, sin is so stupid. Let's go sin. No. What what in the why would we want to go do that? Jesus is better. Okay? That's what the author does. So in all of these warnings, he says, but don't forget how beautiful he is. Don't forget how wonderful he is. He's he's warming your affections while warning us at the same time. Okay? Does that make sense? Use that in your discipling. Study Jesus. It'll Yeah, it's it's the strength. Okay? Now he's going to show that Jesus is a greater high priest than Aaron. We've already read 14 through 16 with the invitation to draw near. And now he's going to show that Jesus is greater than Aaron. Verse, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifice for sins. Okay, so this is basically the, the priest's job description. This is what he's supposed to do. And what he's going to do here in verses 1 through 4 is he's going to give an overview of the high priest's ministry. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Meaning the high priest in Leviticus, like when you come in, you're like, I'm messed up. He goes, well, I'm messed up too. So he can sympathize with you. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. So whenever you read through Levitical law, you see... Um, like so on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, before he can offer up the sacrifice for the rest of the nation, he's got to offer up one for himself because he's a what? He's a sinner too. He's got to deal with that. Okay? Verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Meaning nobody can just come in and say, hey, by the way, I'm going to be the high priest this, this year. No, it's something that God ordains through the casting of lots. He says, this is the man that I have. Okay, he, or, he ordains them, as it were. And he says, this is, this is my, my man. Okay? So they're chosen by God from among men. They minister on behalf of men by offering gifts and sacrifice. They're sympathetic towards the people because of their own sin. Well, Jesus, he's just like that, except better. Verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was anointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. See what it's saying? Jesus didn't just, so one of the accusations likely would have been, this Jesus guy is just some rogue rabbi who's come in and claimed that he can be the high priest. Don't don't believe him. And he's like, whoa, whoa, actually there was a voice from heaven that said he was. And anytime a voice from heaven says, that's the man, you should listen. And that's what he's saying. And he's also said, verse 6, also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is quotation from Psalm 110. Bible trivia time. Most quoted psalm in the New Testament? Psalm 110. Also the most quoted in the book of Hebrews. Okay? So chapter 7 is going to be a whole Christ-centered interpretation of, of that verse for us right, right there. All right, so Jesus was, um, yeah, he was appointed by God. He also has something to offer, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. 
Think about that. Jesus could have gotten out of death. He, he could have been delivered. He could have called on the Father and said, Father, let's just call it off. He could have said, angels, come down and get me off here. But he didn't. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This is the same thing that we saw back in chapter 2. He didn't stop being disobedient and start being obedient, but he moved from one degree of obedience to another. I think it's a good picture of it. He moved from one degree of obedience to another. In every step that Jesus took as the God-man on the earth, he showed what obedience looked like, and he just walked through everything that the Father had for him to do. He showed his obedience in that way. He learned obedience as the God-man through what he suffered. And being made perfect, same kind of thing here, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus learned obedience. Jesus was made perfect. Not in the sense that he was disobedient and imperfect, but rather as the God-man, he walked from one degree of obedience to another. And as he did that, he was ripened, as it were. He was proved, as it were. He was inspected like a priest would do of a lamb to make sure that he's worthy to be sacrificed. Jesus' life was the full inspection of his righteousness so that when he was offered up, there was no blemish in him. Okay? That's what he's talking about here. And then he says, all of this, he's designated by God a high priest after the order of Levi? Nope. Melchizedek. And this is where he's about to drop the wisdom bomb on him, okay? He's about to, he's about to say, I got, I got something deep for y'all. I've got something good for y'all. I'm about to tell you how Jesus is qualified to be the high priest and not be from the tribe of Levi. He's of a greater order, the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, warning number three. About this... Jesus being of the order of Melchizedek, we have much to say, chapter 7. And it's hard to explain, not just because it's hard, but since you have become dull of hearing. Become dull of hearing. He's going to move here into the third warning. He's like, listen guys, we've got people who are falling away because they're believing lies about Jesus. And it's all centered around this thing about whether or not he's qualified to be the high priest. And listen, I, we have to get this as a congregation. We need to understand how Jesus is qualified to be the sufficient Savior for our sins, to be our high priest, to be the one whose blood covers all the transgressions and makes propitiation. We need to understand that. But I'm scared for us, church. I'm scared for us because I see in some of us something that's unsettling. I see some dullness of hearing. When we talk about these deep things of Jesus, I see some of you pushing off and saying, ah, I, don't, I don't want to hear that. I don't need to hear that. And he says, that's terrifying. That scares me that you don't want to learn more about him, that you don't want to go deeper with him. That's not a good sign. So we either need to repent of that for the first time and become a believer, or we need to repent of that and press in deeper in maturity. 
Does that make sense? That's what he's saying to them. It's a pastor talking to his church, saying, guys, please. For, well, first of all, verse 11, you've become dull of hearing. The word dull here, it means sluggish or lazy. They hear the promises and respond with half-hearted indifference. That's nice. It's cool. I'll put that on a mug. That's fine. It's good. It's the opposite of diligence. Look at 1611. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish or dull. It's the same word. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Chapter 11, not chapters 3 and 4. So, dull of hearing here doesn't mean there's something wrong with your ears. It means there's something wrong with your heart. It's a heart issue. Now, listen, we've got 20 minutes left. Don't grow dull of hearing. Hang in there. It's getting late. If you need to stand up, do it. I see some of you becoming, this is very appropriate. So, (laughs) hang in there. 20 minutes. I'm going to let you out by 10. Don't you worry. So this is a, it's a dangerous spiritual disease in which the heart doesn't seek God's promises anymore. It resists the commands. Love is lacking. Faith is foreign. Obedience is legalism. Verse 12. For though by this time, this is chapter 5, 12, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Meaning, what he's not saying is everybody should be up front doing what I'm doing right now. I'm just a Christian like the rest of you. God's just gifted me, maybe in a way that's different than some of you, okay? That's just a gift that I use. We all have different gifts, right? So what he's saying here is not that everybody needs to be up front being the teacher. What he's saying is you should be able to, to help other people understand who Jesus is. And you should help be able to help other people do the Great Commission. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a disciple who makes disciples. You should be able to sit down with a non-Christian and explain to them very basically what it means to be a non-Christian, what it means to become a Christian. And you should be able to sit down with a new Christian and help them understand what is it basics of what it means to walk with Jesus. You should be able to do that. Like that's a normal thing for Christians to do. Now, if you hear that and that makes you nervous, you're like, I'm not sure I could do that. That's a good sign if it makes you nervous. Praise God. That's an evidence of grace. Ask your pastor. He'd love to help you learn how to do that. Okay? This is part of God's grace to you. But if you hear that and be like, oh, that sounds so legalistic. I don't think I actually need to do what Jesus said. That's not a good sign. Now I encourage you to come and talk to me afterwards. Okay? That's not a good sign. He says, by this time, you should, you should be able to teach. But fact is, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. That's the, the gospel ABCs. Why do we keep coming back to the fact that These basic truths that like, yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Yes, yes, he he died on the cross. Yes, he rose from the dead. Yes, by grace alone, through faith alone. 
We've been on this for like six months. We've been on this for two years. That's true, and we never want to get past that, but it's time to go deeper than that. Let's go deeper. Let's take that to the next level. He says, you need milk, not solid food, which is what babies eat. You're eating like babies. Verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is really important. The way you mature as a Christian is you practice discernment. That's how you grow as a Christian. You practice discernment. You practice looking at something and discerning, is that good or evil? Is that true or untrue? Does that fit with what God says or does that not fit with what God says? The more you do that in your own life, in the life of other people, with every advertisement that comes, every TV or movie thing you watch, every song that comes, are you able to distinguish truth from not truth? So when someone comes to me and says, I love John Piper's preaching, and I love Joel Osteen's preaching, when that comes out of someone's mouth, that for me is a red flag. I don't think that's possible for you to listen to both of those men and think that they're talking about the same God. They just aren't. It's a very different gospel. It's a very different Jesus. It's a very different call to what it means to be a Christian. Now, if someone comes like that, I'd be like, hey, let's do coffee sometime. Let's talk about that. And you, you want to do that, okay? And, and that may be you. And I would just say again, you, I, it's God's grace that you hear that. That may have offended some of you. Listen, it's God's grace. And what you need to do is not say, well, I don't like him because of that. What you need to do is you need to say, is that true or not? Because in the end, it doesn't matter what I say. What matters is what the word says. And your job is to interact by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to discern whether what's being said all the time is true. So I don't know. I, 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 y'all don't have Christian bookstores here, do you? Do you know what that is? That's, bookstore that has Christian stuff in it? Okay, I don't know. So in America, we have these, okay? And we also have this Christian radio, okay? Where it's safe for the whole family, which what that means is we're going to water things down so much that there's going to be no offense in anything that's ever said. If I'm Satan, you know what I want to do? I want to water down sermons and churches and theology so much that nobody ever gets offended. And I want to, I want to promote comfort and ease so that Christians stay in spiritual diapers for the rest of their life. That's what happens. Satan is crafty. If he can just keep you in spiritual diapers to where you're not growing and eating meat. The author of Hebrews says, it's time to grow up, y'all. Get in the word. It's time to go deeper. And I'm worried because some of you just have no appetite for that. Pause. What I'm not saying is that everybody in here needs to read systematic theologies and learn Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and like go like that kind of deep. What I'm talking about is, do you want to love Jesus more? Do you want to know him more? Do you want to grow more in your understanding of him? If so, good. 
do it. Press in by faith. I have no idea. Chapter 6, all right. Verse, verse 1. So, but by the way, four symptoms that we saw there of, of a dull hearing. Laziness toward the word. Scripture light. Number two, an inability to teach. Let the professionals handle it. Number, number three, an ABC diet. Don't, don't talk about doctrine. All we need is Christ, you know. Christ unites, doctrine divides, that kind of nonsense. As soon as you ask which Jesus are you talking about, you have to do doctrine, okay? So it's just, it's there. Number four, lack of discernment. Those are all signs of the, of the dull hearing. And again, I don't know what it's like over here. I think with the, the persecution and the, just the pressure that you guys feel, it helps. But that is American evangelicalism. Like that is what's promoted. That you want to have an ABC diet and you want to let the professionals do it. You know, the guys in tight jeans and goofy hair and like screaming. It's like you want to let those guys handle it. And then you want to make sure that you don't get into doctrine because that divides people. You want to keep it real shallow so that everybody's happy. And, and discerning, hey, listen, we're just going to keep you comfortable. You don't need to worry about it. Listen, I, I feel really nervous when a new Christian says, hey, I just went to the Christian bookstore. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> like, that terrifies me. I'm like, what did you come back with? And I'm not just hating, but like, if you've ever been to an American Christian bookstore, I mean, like, they've got, they've got T.D. Jakes sitting right next to a MacArthur study Bible. And like, if you... Like, that's not good if you, if you know anything about those guys. Like, it's very different teachings, okay? Like, they would, they would just disagree on some things is a nice way to put it, okay? But, like, do, are you learning how to discern that? That's the mark of maturity. One of the marks of maturity, okay? And it's got to be accompanied by love, okay? So you can be the right doctrine guy and, like, I'm the meat dude, all right? And be like, all oh, y'all are stupid. Like, that's not the answer either. It's got to be with love, Okay, But he says, as I look at you guys, I'm worried. Because I see a dullness of hearing. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. What that doesn't mean is leave behind in the sense of forget the gospel. No, no, no. Build on it. Move past that being all we do. Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of, and he's going to give you three pairs of doctrines. Okay? He's going to give you three pairs of doctrines here. Repentance from good works and faith toward God. Those are issues of salvation. Instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. That's issues of ceremony. And the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Those are issues of end time stuff. All right. He said it's time to move past those basic things. Now, I think one of the things that's important to notice is those six things are not things that are unique to Christianity. Those, are, those six things are, are six truths that are common between Jewish thought and Christianity. 
And I think that those are probably like your first gospel track. That they would, this is where they would have started with, the Jewish, with a Jewish friend. Let me show you what the Bible says about how you're saved. It's the same thing. Remember how Abraham was justified by faith? Well, it's the same thing in the gospel. We're justified by faith. Remember how you had ceremonial washings, which was a response of faith because of you were trusting in the sacrifice? Well, in the same way, baptism, it's what that is. It's a response to, what, to trusting in the sacrifice that was made for you. Remember how Daniel 12 said that everybody's going to die and then people will either enter into eternal life or eternal judgment? Jesus says the same thing. Book of Revelation is all about that, same thing. So I think these are commonalities between Jewish concepts and, and the way that Jesus fulfills all of them. And he's saying, let's press on past that. And this we will do, verse 3, go on to maturity, if God permits. Do you notice what he does here? He casts, he casts our hope upon God being the one who gives persevering grace. That's, that's the hope of us. Not that I'm going to do it, but that God through me is going to do it. This we will do if God permits. God is the sovereign provider of grace. He is the author of our salvation from beginning to end. Okay. Now what he does in verse 4 is he is going to work through and he is going to show five things that characterize these people who are dull of hearing that should alarm us. He's going to lay out five things that sound very much like what Christians experience. And he's going to say that these are the same things that people whose hearts grew dull and fell away had experienced at one point. Hang with me. Verse 4, it is impossible, we'll, we'll come back to this idea of impossible to renew to repentance, but verse 4, it is, for it is impossible in the case of, notice what he does, what's the first, what's the word? No, 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 before that. In the case of those, this is really important, those, now pause, look down in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's making a distinction between those and y'all, the one who are continuing to walk by faith. That's really important. He's not talking here about people who are saved. He's talking about those that had experiences that looked just like what happened to Christians. But in the end, because they fall away, they prove that they weren't of him. Hang with me. Those who have once been enlightened, they heard and they understood the truth of the gospel. Is it possible for somebody to understand the truth of the gospel and not be born again? You bet it is. Some of the best explanations of what Christians believe are in liberal commentaries where the people say, I don't even believe in God, but this is what Christians say. You can understand it and have your eyes enlightened. In the same way that Balaam had his eyes opened and saw the angel of the Lord, but just went on in to sin, that can happen to a non-Christian who hears the truth of the gospel and says, I understand that. That makes sense. 
who have tasted the heavenly gift. They've experienced God's blessing in a real, tangible way. Is it possible for non-Christians to experience the blessings in a real, tangible way, yet not be born again? I believe it is. And has, here's a tough one, shared in the Holy Spirit. Some, some translations say partakers in the Holy Spirit. Is it possible for someone to be convicted of sin, to experience miracles, to maybe even be cured of leprosy and then walk away and not come back and thank Jesus and be a partaker of the Holy Spirit? Yes, it is. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, they had seen miracles. They had seen that. There are people that have experienced the Holy Spirit's power healing them, but they're not saved. Your next one. They have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. They've heard God's word. They liked it. It made sense. It impacted them. You see, the Bible's, the Bible's less hard to understand than it is to swallow. You know what I mean? It's, it's pretty easy to understand what it says in one sense. But to swallow it and believe it is different. They've tasted of the powers of the age of come, to come. Again, they saw miracles. Matthew chapter 7. Did we not perform miracles and cast out demons in your name? I never knew you. That's possible. Verse 6, And then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. To repentance that saves. Since, since, here's why, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This is what he's saying. In the case of those who used to be here with us, who heard the gospel, who understood the gospel, who came down and got baptized, who ate the Lord's Supper with us, who were members, they're still in our membership directory, who, who the one brother or sister, they were healed, they saw the Holy Spirit work, they, they felt conviction, but now what they've done is they've gone out and they've forsaken Jesus. If you've been a Christian long enough, there's probably people who come to mind right now people that you used to be in Bible studies with, people who you used to take communion with, people I used to be on staff with in multiple churches. One of the best teachers I've ever seen. Yeah, a guy used to disciple. And now, he's gone. He says, in the case of those, what they've done is they have re-crucified the Son of God in this sense. I don't think Jesus is the Son of God. I think He got what He deserved. He is, he's, a, he's, a, he's a dead Jew. And that's what He deserved. And that's what I think He is. Rather than the propitiation for our sins and the one who rose from the dead who now intercedes and is my hope. The confidence, my boast... 
My confession, I renounce that. And now I'm out. In the case of those, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, what does that mean? What, it, what I think it doesn't mean is that someone who does that, that there's no chance that they'll ever come back to Christ. We pray and we weep and we chase after them and we reason and we, we do all that we can. There's nothing that's impossible with God. God can get anybody. Totally believe that. But he warns here that there is a state of heart that people don't return from. And it's, it's a heart that is hardened against God's mercy in such a way that doesn't care about God. This is what he's talking about when we get to, to chapter 12. Go over there for a moment. Look at chapter 12, verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14. He says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So you hear that? That's an exhortation. Your job as a church, make sure nobody fails to obtain it. That no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. And by it, many become defiled. You ever seen that happen in a church? Bitterness take over? That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You remember what Esau did? I don't care about the inheritance that I get from God. What I want is a bowl of porridge. And I'm going to trade these eternal, glorious things for a sack of food. Fleeting pleasure. Temporary satisfaction. He says, don't be like Esau. Don't trade this great inheritance of Christ for, for a little fun. Don't do it. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Esau couldn't repent. He, he, there was none there. Why? Because his repentance was not rooted in the right thing. I'm going to give you this last, last thing to chew on. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. 2 Corinthians 7.10, one of the verses I use most in counseling with people. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Esau was not crying because he offended the holy God. He was crying because he misses out on his blessings. He's down here. My life's ruined. It's all over. I lost my job. Nobody likes me anymore. Things aren't going well. I don't care about God. That, he's crying, but it doesn't have anything to do with, I've offended a holy God. It's worldly sorrow. He says that leads to death. True repentance is one that is aimed at the Lord. I've offended God. That breaks my heart. So whenever you find yourself caught in the middle of those two types of repentance, pray that God would produce the one that leads to life.
Now, Hebrews chapter 6, it's, it's difficult, okay? It, it is. But I think, his, I think his point is clear that you have this exhortation to not be dull of hearing like those who have had this spiritual experience but prove to not be believing. Verse 7 of chapter 6. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it, produces a crop useful for those whose forsake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end it is to be burned. He uses that illustration. The land is the heart, the rain is the word of God. A response of fruit is life that leads to blessing. A response of thorns is a curse that leads to death. I think it's a play on the the parable of the sower again. So what he's saying is, what's coming out of them? Is it life or is it death? What's coming out of you? Is it thorns and thistles or is it fruit? Let's pray that God would make it fruit. And we know that there's, there's dry days and all of these kinds of things. But this word is intended to, to humble us. So, one question people would have, well, is it uh, one, one clarification and one question. One clarification is this. God will always forgive a repentant person. God will always forgive a repentant person. Hebrews seems to imply that there may come a time when a person can no longer repent. So what's the application? Give me a verse from tonight. Therefore, if you hear his voice, that's the point. This, this putting Jesus on layaway until another day doesn't work. You know what I mean by that? Like putting him off. There's none of that. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. A question you may ask, was it too late for me? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Can a person be enlightened to the gospel, taste heavenly gifts, partake of the Holy Spirit, and end up rejecting Christ? Yes. Judas, Judas walked with Jesus. He ate bread with Jesus. But, If this concerns you about you, that's really good news. Non-Christians aren't worried about that. That's what the Spirit of God does. And what it's supposed to make you do is say, I need Jesus then, and to draw near in faith. So, for those of you who are anxious of heart, and you heard that, and it freaked you out, calm down. If you're freaking out, that's good news. There's no righteousness in being in a Bible study at 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday, but that's a good sign that you're thinking about the things of God. And if you're worried by that kind of warning, take courage. You would respond by drawing near and saying, I want to grow. Praise God. If you hear that and say, you know, I just don't think I believe any of this. I would love to talk with you afterwards and see what's going on there, okay? I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to end our time. I'll stay here until the last person leaves or until my ride leaves. Um, And I'm happy to answer some questions as best as we can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to be a people who love the Lord Jesus. 
and that we would we would trust that we would not be sluggish in the following after of Christ but that we would cry out cry out for help Lord help us to see Jesus to behold him by faith and we pray that you would let not one in this room fall away let not one of us grow hard and dull of hearing and Father we pray for those of who used to be among us who have wandered Father we we think of specific people friends family members and God we're we're scared for them and we know that there's nothing impossible with you so we ask that you would turn even the heart of those that we would think it would never turn and that you might bring them to repentance God, might you mark our days by faithfulness. Help us. Help us to trust and help us to press into the rest that waits. In the name of Jesus, amen.